This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I literally spent the first year wasted at Stanford just in classes. I, I thought I was like just the Asian kid who would just put my head down, work hard, and that'd be good enough. And in retrospect, oh my God, I have so many regrets of not building more relationships. The, the most valuable thing I've taken from both grad school and undergrad is, has always been the personal relationships. And I just wish I did more of that uh, earlier. Hello, Xin Zhao. Uh, this is Tony No. I uh, currently am a chairman and co-founder of Everest Education, an uh, ed tech company uh, in Vietnam serving Vietnamese students who aspire for international quality education. Uh, I'm involved with nonprofits, uh, having set up, been one of the co-founders of UNAVSA, Liên Hội Sinh Viên Việt Nam Bắc Mỹ, uh, way back in the day, and then more recently, sponsors for Educational Opportunity Vietnam. Really happy to be here with you today, Kenneth. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. Thank you, Tony. What's it mean to be Vietnamese to you? I think for me, honestly, it's a, a complicated question because the despite all of the work I do in Vietnam, I don't particularly feel that I have to do something just because it's Vietnam or just because uh, of my identity. Um, to me, being Vietnamese is being a member of a global community. And we recognize that we have a lot of beautiful parts about our history, our shared culture, and our experiences and challenges. Um, but at the same time, we are not unique. We're not the only refugees in the world to kind of have uh, an experience. We're not the only minorities in America. Um, and so to recognize that we're also part of a larger community, larger movement, I think is always something that has been in the back of my mind and only more recently has been cultivated to be more, more refined. Recognizing that we're not the only ones allows us more freedom to be whatever the fuck we want to be. 
<laughs> Absolutely. Doesn't pigeonhole like, it. Yeah. Like wh why do we need to have certain definitions of what we are and what we're not, right? Uh, we are not a homogeneous yeah. group of people. We have lots of different uh, personal backgrounds, political viewpoints, and we don't need to all be the same. In fact, it's more beautiful as a community, the more diversity we have and that we uh, recognize, right? So I know this podcast is actually supposed to be about me, but I'm going to use this to poke at you a little bit. Sure thing. <laughs> like, you know, even your own experience having gone to the military is, I think, something that is not uh, that common amongst our generation of, of Vietnamese Americans. And something I'm really curious, like, first and foremost, thank you for your service. I, I deeply appreciate um, the fact that, you know, you've made that sacrifice. And I would love to hear actually a little bit how you uh, came to that decision and how that went. Uh, thank you for asking. And Tony, this question is very um, sensitive because if you go back to 1993 and my decision then to join the Marine Corps, um, it's a beautiful story. It's a beautiful patriotic, U.S. patriotic story. But if you forward throughout the next two and a half, three decades, you know, it gets a little bit muggy. The, the thought process becomes a little bit more refined with mm. education, uh, with talking to other veterans, talking to academics, talking mm. to people on many different sides. Can, so, can you share a little bit more? Like what, what, what that evolution, like, uh, I, I think I can imagine the patriotic story in 93, but maybe just starting with that. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, uh, my family was sponsored in 1975 into a family, um, the Spanglers in uh, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, coming out of Fort Indian Town Gap. My mom and dad left because their English probably wasn't so uh, clear that they understood what exactly the Lutheran uh, family was trying to pull on them. And they thought that it was like a pressure to join their church. And my parents mm. were very staunch Catholics. So mm -hmm. they left after eight weeks uh, with baby in tow, with me in tow. Um, after I was born, they just picked up and left and never explained anything. I always, I always sort of felt this sense of duty and this like weird reason to thank the United States for having people like that that brought us in. Yeah. So, Oh, uh, you know, I was at a at a at a death festival in Orange County um, when I was 17, and you know, one of these Vietnamese uh, Marine recruiters stepped up to me and my brother, and um, he pitched it, and we were like, "Yeah, that for me it made sense." And I was like, "You know, this is one way that I'm going to um, pay the the country that you know really gave uh, my people a, a new chance." And that's what I was thinking at that time at 17. Yeah. There's no background. There's no, no understanding of much. You just, mm -hmm. just, you know, think that the United States was a place that gave, you know, all these Vietnamese people a wonderful new chance. And so that's where it started. And that's what I believed uh, for a good three or four years while I was in the Marine Corps. I've, I lived it. And uh, when yeah. I, a few months before I got out, I was turning 21 um, and I contacted that family and I showed up uh, in my dress blues to thank them personally. And they, they hadn't mm -hmm. heard from our family for 21 years. Wow. Yeah. And wow. I was born like around Thanksgiving. So <laughs> yeah. I turned it around Thanksgiving and flew back and spent time with all the, the whole family that, that brought us in. And, and we just kept in touch ever since then. What, what was their expression, reaction when they saw you? 
they, yeah, they were definitely blown away and uh, yeah. surprised. And I said, I don't want you guys to think that we are in an ungrateful group of people. Um, uh -huh. This is what happened in my mom and dad's mind, you know, at the time, mm -hmm. you know, they, they thought that they were being, um, they were being pressured into a religion and yeah. whether they were or were not, doesn't matter to me, you know, um, cause there would be other, if they spoke better English, there would be better ways to handle that communication, but they just <laughs> they weren't equipped for it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and and after these years of after leaving in uh, 1997, getting out in 1997, I realized that um, that things aren't so black and white, you know, with the U.S. Mm -hmm. military, you know, our involvement in Vietnam and Korea and, you know, Afghanistan, things are not as what we think. And I think it's important to dissect everything. I mean, not right now, but, you know, just. Yeah. To... <laughs> well, was there a pivotal moment for you where it just clicked like, hey, oh, my God, I'm having doubts on on how i spent my time or was it just this build up as you learned more about it's it's build up as, yeah. yeah it's build up as you learn and especially going through uh university um yeah liberal education you know usc it changes you it it makes you you know i was a full-blown republican um, mm -hmm. in the marine corps uh growing up i was a republican i have a lot of republican family uh coming out of the marine corps i was a republican then when I got to USC, it, you know, especially as an anthropology major, mm. things started to change. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, being around the film industry in LA, things started to change. So yeah. I kind of understand and can adapt to both ways of looking at things. And I think it's important, and I'll say it here, I think it's important to listen to all sides of the story, um, whether it's Absolutely. Democrats. It's so important to just to be to be able to listen and not be so polarized. So Honestly, I feel like when people ask me who I am, and I actually, I don't think I talked about it in the introduction, but I feel like my biggest opportunity or, or I don't know if responsibility is too heavy, or maybe opportunity is to just be a community builder no matter where I go. Um, and to me, that involves reconnecting that dialogue between all of us, whether or not we agree or not, can we at least agree that it's worthwhile to engage with each other and talk, right? I remember back in the UNAVSA days, one of the most contentious issues back then was around Vietnamese students who are studying in the US, Zhu Hok Singh. And we go and they would get, you know, discriminated against, yelled at, you know, protested by fellow Vietnamese or by Vietnamese Americans, right? And to me, it's always baffled me, right? Um, but I, un I understood that there's like a lot of baggage uh, around all this. And there was a conference where I helped organize a panel uh, for some Zhuok Singh to come up and share their experiences in a panel discussion. And I just remember how contentious everything felt, right? And so part of me in the back of my mind always wanted to help bridge this gap starting first with that. I think that was the first one I ever felt like, Hey, this is something that I can do. And I enjoyed trying to bridge that gap. And then that went on to be the rest of my involvement with UNAVSA. And then actually a big reason why I did business in Vietnam. I built a, a finance career first and now an education entrepreneur's career. But the theme is about building community, right? How do I build a help build contribute to this community where Vietnamese can access uh, the international world, uh, despite 
perhaps even differences that that we have, right? Um, especially around politics, right? We don't all agree uh, around everything, but there's actually a ton of things where our interests do align, and it's it's definitely worthwhile to to have that discussion uh, there, right? And so, uh, from a personal career perspective, I I've subconsciously <laughs> been doing all this, and it's only more recently when I reflected back. Um, so I really appreciate your own journey through trying to navigate this, you know, internal to yourself and then, uh, what you're doing now with this podcast, right. To do a lot of that same thing and recognize the diversity in our community is, is really great. Thank you. I can't wait till we, um, can move past the, the trauma and I, I'm, in, I'm very impatient about this, but I, I know that it takes time move past the 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 history and move past the trauma and the pain and and all of this culture speak about you know reconciliation you know all of it i i and i just want to focus on the badass the badassery that's happening all over the world with vietnamese people right i mean i mm-hmm. can't wait to get to that and sometimes i do get to that yeah but for the most part i mean in order to get to that i think we were as a community we we have to kind of understand what we are dealing with and the yeah. Hu Sing thing was a, was a very complex thing because I had friends that were very close to me during those times. We even had roommates. Yeah, uh. would say you have to be careful, and mm-hmm. and you know we understood it at the time, and we 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 tried to try to make sense of it all. But those guys are now running the country. Mm-hmm. You know, they are the guys that are running finance, <laughs> government. You know, they're inside. And, you know, and are we mixed and we are part of it? Are we, because it's, it's kind of like, well, they're really good friends of ours and special people. And, mm-hmm. um, but are we the same? And, you know, this is something that we have to constantly grapple with my brother and I, cause you know, we, yeah. we you know, the same social networks that coming out of the Marine Corps and, and USC. Absolutely. So, um, in 2009, I started my second nonprofit, uh, SEO Vietnam, Sponsors for Educational Opportunity Vietnam. This is before search engine optimization existed. But um, we are an affiliate of a global uh, organization uh, started in New York, actually, SEO USA, which uh, is a whole minority diversity program to help people of color, students of color break into Wall Street. In, in Vietnam, we started it with the intention that I, I expected that, uh, hey, I was working in Vietnam. I was pretty new to the country at that time. And, but I knew lots of other people in the community, Vitgyo, who were curious, right? And so I thought that I would create this bridge and help uh, folks like myself find work experiences that were meaningful and also give back while we're there, right? It's a very uh, community-driven uh, nonprofit. And what it turns out is that after two summers of running it, like 90 plus percent of the applicants and, and actual fellows who go through the program are actually Vietnamese, full 100% Vietnamese nationals. Uh, some of them are Zhu Hoxing, and some of them were uh, studying at Vietnamese universities. But fast forward to today, we now have, uh, by the end of this summer, we'll have about 640 alumni who have gone through this fellowship. And literally, these are the top of the top students uh, at top international universities, uh, as well as top Vietnamese universities, who have decided to come back, do an internship, 
but also go through this leadership program where they're giving back, they're learning how to be uh, supporting one another to give back more effectively, uh, no matter what it is that they do, right? And so one of the beautiful things about that is that I didn't realize that it was going to be that population. I thought I was going to try and serve people who looked like myself, Yeah. right? Um, and it turns out that I was totally wrong and we just kind of went with the flow. And now it's, it's uh, a really um, beautiful, diverse community, but it's driven by Vietnamese in the country. And you'd be amazed at how passionate and uh, aspirational uh, this, these youth are, right? And yeah, like you said, many of them are now in positions of business leadership. A few of them are even in government, right? Uh, and I think if more people knew about what uh, is happening, they'd actually be really impressed by what the young populations in Vietnam are doing, regardless of you know yeah. what background their parents may or may not have, right? Um, and so that part to me is something that I've really loved. And I don't think it's possible to just forget and move past history uh, because that is a, an important experience that uh, the community has undergone. But yeah, you can, you can acknowledge and respect what's happened while still looking forward to, to move beyond it, right? And yeah, reconciliation always sounds like this big word, but I think as long as you have respect for each other as, as humans, first and foremost, I think it creates a lot more opportunity to, to do amazing things. And we're seeing that happen now. There's an elephant in the room whenever we have these conversations is, how did you get through to your parents when, <laughs> you know, somebody with so much education like you, um, like yourself, how do you explain that to your parents? Like, yo, I have all this education, but I want to go take a dump in Vietnam, in, in their head, right? In their mind, they're probably thinking, why are you throwing it away uh, in a country that we have written off? What gave you the courage to go through with that? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think most people, uh, not, not most people, a lot of people in the Vietnamese American community in Gangdong probably know my dad, uh, Ngo Ji Thieng. Uh, and he is extremely vocal or was extremely vocal. Um, and we have agreed to disagree okay, wait, on what, a lot of these. What was he vocal about? So my father was someone who feels very strongly that, uh, you know, the country is, is not in the rightful uh, state, right, uh, of, of governance. And he protested things like the flag. He uh, was involved in trying to fight for more uh, rights that we as Americans may value more than people who grew up in a communist system. Um, and he feels very passionate about these things, as many people in, in our community do, right? And I think a lot of it goes back to personal experiences, having fought so long in, uh, in the South Vietnamese army against uh, communist uh, regimes. And being on the losing side of, of the war and having to deal with all those very, very personal uh, repercussions. In addition to like very idealistically believing that you know, the American way of democracy is the best and right way and wanting to see that projected into Vietnam. And, you know, very, very frankly, like I 
take a very apolitical stance on do I believe that one type of governance is the only right way for a country? I, I have opinions that I think, you know, there are systems that are better than others, but I'm not so black and white at all myself. Um, I, I just care about governance being effective for the people, right? And the it, more, does, does government meet the needs of, yeah. of the population it's serving? That's all and I care. The more I have these conversations, the more I'm, I'm hearing that from people who are like on the ground, people who are very knowledgeable about government, about politics, seems to be if it's working and it's not breaking society apart and yeah. thriving, then we should let what they're doing happen. I mean, whether we like it or not, there is an yeah. unwritten social compact by every population and their government. And if it's good enough for the people there, they won't complain or they may just grumble. But if it's at a certain boiling point, they will always take matters into their own hands. Mm -hmm. And yes, certain governments can be more or less repressive to keep that bottled up. But at the end of the day, I, I think over the long term, the, the people will express their views um, themselves. And they, they actually don't need that much encouragement from the outside. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it's a very, unfortunately, egocentric view that many Americans have that we feel we must project yeah. everything out. And, you know, there's a lot in, I mean, we can get into foreign affairs, I guess, but the, I think that there's a lot of limitations on how much we can actually do, even if we wanted to, right? Um, take, take China, for example, right? I think going back to the 90s, the Western liberal worldview was that we could all include China into capitalist economy and integrate them more into the world, and they would demand more uh, rights for themselves and you know, eventually convert the traditional authoritarian communist regime into more democratic norms. And I know many people who were involved in architecting you know, China's entry into the World Trade Organization. And I think people openly talk about now how we were wrong, that China has clearly found a way to integrate into the world economically while maintaining their own system. And yet what's, what blew my mind was at Harvard. So I went to business school. I graduated in 08. Out of the 900, there were about almost 50 students from mainland China. And almost every single one went back to work in China, almost like 90 plus percent. Wow. Day they graduated straight back. Why? Because the opportunities were there. And number two, they felt that the government, even though they may not agree with everything that's going on in the government, that it was effective for, for them, right? And I don't know if they would all say that right now today, especially given how, how COVID has been handled lately there. But I think that like is those people, the, the leaders and future leaders of the country who will ultimately determine what happens there more so than us as Americans from, from the outside. Um, so my role in, in all this, if I, if I have any, is how do I build strong communities of individuals who have the critical thinking, can make these decisions themselves and uh, figure out what works best for them and, and be effective, no matter what we right. label that, that system, right? And so I think that's been a theme, whether I've been working with companies, connecting them to capital sources outside of Vietnam, 
whether I've been working with nonprofit through the nonprofit for students and be developing their careers as professionals, professionals, or as with Everest, working with elementary school students and teaching them critical thinking foundation skills that are going to be useful no matter what happens. Resilience, grit, curiosity. Um, these things I've heard you talk about uh, through different uh, interviews and different publications. And um, how did you have that? How do you develop that uh, in your life? Even though I'm an education businessman, right? Like, I'll, I'll be honest, I think there's no factor stronger, more influential than your parents and, and how you're raised. So I am tremendously grateful for my own parents and all the sacrifices they made to teach me and my brother. I have a younger brother who's uh, has more degrees than I do and is working uh, even harder. And like the, the experiences that we had and, and seeing how hard they had to work through it. Right. And I, I feel like that's not an uncommon uh, first generation immigrant kind of story, but just seeing that and then making sure that we appreciated all of that. Uh, it was hard to not at least feel the sense of the weight of that opportunity and just to not waste it. And so with, with that recognition, I think that that created the why, right? Like, Hey, I can't waste this opportunity. And I appreciate my parents uh, for how they did it. Um, then it was just figuring out the how along the way. And to be honest, I don't think I'm the smartest guy. I'm, I've never felt like I was the top person in any situation I've, I've been in, in terms of just pure intellect, but I am damn willing to work as hard as anybody. And I will never, ever let anyone outwork me to, to anything. What I lack in any sort of talent in any area, I will make up by just sheer resourcefulness and, and grit. Power, yeah. Um, it, it took a while to figure that out, to be honest. Like, I wasn't valedictorian or, or even top 5% of my high school. And I went to a small high school, yet somehow I still ended up at Stanford. <laughs> um, I think mainly because I worked really hard on all these other aspects of my life, like in getting involved in the Vietnamese American community, uh, developing leadership skills and uh, working as my butt off on, on grades. But like when I got to Stanford, I remember feeling that I was never, I felt overwhelmed. I felt so out of water compared to all these super polished kids who had gone to fancy boarding schools. And I, you know, I'm like this Vietnamese refugee kid grew up in orange County, like have no idea. Uh, there's this term the Atlantic, uh, I was reading an article about, um, recently social ease. I had no social ease about how do you approach a professor, uh, and get, get them to become your mentor, your advisor. I had no clue on, on that. How do you go befriend uh, Chelsea Clinton was in my class. How do you go befriend people who uh, have this asymmetric power uh, or at least perceived asymmetric power? Um, and I was just scared out of my mind and intimidated by all these folks. Now, I, I think I've finally gotten over all that, but it took a long time. And I just said, I'll, I'll work my butt off to, to get there. Um, God, these are such interesting topics that each one of those could take <laughs> like an hour to talk about this social ease stuff, because these are things that are never talked about in our world right like never I, like who who's gone to class with chelsea clinton i mean it's like that's right like, but, the, yeah. but but how did you ever uh, during the time um at stanford get close to her or have a conversation or not with her no i was too scared uh met her dad like as a hello in a crowd kind of deal when he came to visit her but like nothing beyond that 
I, I literally <laughs> spent the first year wasted at Stanford just in classes. I, I thought I was like just the Asian kid who would just put my head down, work hard, and that'd be good enough. And in retrospect, oh my God, I have so many regrets of not building more relationships. The, the most valuable thing I've taken from both grad school and undergrad is, has always been the personal relationships. And Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. I just wish I did more of that okay. uh, earlier. But but if you were a kid, if there was a kid listening right now at Stanford or Harvard and sitting his first year in and he's listening to this and you're saying all this, but how do you pull yourself up from your own bootstrap and, and, and go talk to the Chelsea Clinton who's in your class at this moment when you have no social ease, when you have no tools that your culture um, your family culture has instilled within you. Yeah. you. You have no way to approach this person and you have no ABCs on how to connect. And, and how to make small talk, yeah. yeah. Um, what would you say to that kid, that girl, that boy? I mean, it could be in any environment. It doesn't have to be like sure. fancy, fancy school. But I think it's be comfortable with yourself that there's no way that you can be held to the same standards as someone who grew up in a different environment. And as long as you are honest with like, you've done your best in whatever circumstance you had, that's all that you can expect of yourself. And you should be proud of whatever you have been able to achieve. And there's no, there's no shame in any background. That's just, what circumstances of what cards we were dealt in life. Uh, and the question is, where do you go from there? Right. We all have where we are today, right? Where Kenneth is today, where Tony knows today, that is where we are. And maybe we've made some decisions along the way that got us here. Maybe we got lucky. Maybe we got unlucky, whatever it is. Uh, I do say a lot. It doesn't matter where you start, but how quickly you grow. So forget no matter what background you had, um, just, just focus on, on that next thing. So I'll, I'll tell you the story of that first day at Stanford because it is still like one of the most scarring memories I have of my first year and how embarrassed I am. But I think it's helpful for anyone approaching any new environment. I remember going in and it's like freshman dorm, like hundred some of us living together uh, at a dorm called Larkin at Stanford. And we're in the dorm lounge doing the introductions. Everyone's going around spending 30 seconds to introduce a little bit about themselves. And I'm just sitting there. And as they start going around the room, I start shrinking. They're like, oh, here's somebody who is already uh, uh, a journalist who's already gotten published. Here's somebody who's like been working on curing cancer. Here's somebody who's like a, an Olympian already. I was like, what the F am I doing here? Like I literally felt so out of place. And so I don't remember what I said. I, I like blanked out. I'm sure I had something terrible. And I just left afterwards. 
I didn't even stay and like mingle with everybody. I just went back to my room. And I remember spending most of freshman year kind of in this debilitated, <laughs> shrunken, unconfident position. And it wasn't until much, much later when I actually joined a, a fraternity, um, Lambda Phi Epsilon, which is now like uh, nationally is in major trouble. But anyways, I, I joined the fraternity and had a phenomenal experience out of that. Uh, to me, it was actually a leadership building, community building opportunity that I took really seriously. But anyways, um, it wasn't until I, I joined other organizations where I felt like I had a home. And for everybody, as long as I think you find something to ground yourself in, then you have a little bit of confidence that, hey, I belong somewhere, right? And if you can start with whatever community circle that you can identify with there and just recognize that there's always somewhere that each of us belong, to recognize that there's some beauty in, in that experience and just be okay that like, hey, there's lots of things that I don't know. And then be curious. Like, so my second year, I started just going up and talking to people, asking them about like, hey, so what was it like to go to fancy Exeter Andover School, Harvard Westlake, right? Um, and what are the things you, what are some of the things you learn? What are the things you regret, right? And then as I got to know everybody, it's like, oh, actually there's a lot more similarities we have. Right. Despite this polish that they have on the surface, that, you know, we're still second year students together now going through lots of similar experiences that we can share together. And my way of uh, connecting to people actually became just try to be a good listener, good listener and try to be helpful. So uh, I now give this advice to young people, even in your careers, right? A lot of times you're looking for mentors and you might be intimidated by you know, in the professional environment of your bosses. Uh, I certainly felt that way too. And one thing I had to really use to overcome that is just like trying to just ask them lots of questions, open-ended and don't be afraid to ask the questions and then just listen. And then whenever I found an opportunity to help them, I would do that. Sometimes it was by doing work myself, but more often than not, what I found has become my calling card is actually by connecting people together. So I, I think I'm an excellent networker these days because I'm always listening to what whoever it is I'm talking to. And if there's an opportunity where I can be of service to them, be more than happy to take five minutes, 10 minutes out to go connect them to XYZ other person. And so now I have a phenomenal network where I feel like I can literally reach almost anybody, <laughs> certainly in Vietnam. Uh, I, I think I could reach anyone in Vietnam uh, because of this type of approach, but it started with literally 18 year old me being scared out of my mind and developing my own groove slowly by recognizing that I don't know so many things and just being humble about that and being curious and asking lots of questions. What, le what inspired and what led you, um, to creating, uh, Everest education? Oh man. So I was uh, in the hedge fund world for a long time. Um, so I w had been doing 15 years of finance, of uh, investing and advising companies. Um, and for a while, I was uh, one running a fund in Vietnam um, and really, really enjoying that experience and seeing some of the things that 
we talked about today, some of the problems and opportunities there. And then on the business side, I'd actually been doing a ton of investing also in China and the education space was exploding. Uh, now it's imploded, but back then it was exploding. And I remember some of the biggest, most exciting companies to invest in in China period were a lot of these education companies. Um, I met and got to know and invested in some that were really, really inspiring. Um, and I said, look, like, here's a prototype of seeing mm. a high quality education business in a similar market that's obviously much bigger. And, you know, the, the typical uh, thing that people say is it's 15 years ahead of Vietnam, which it probably is closer to 12 years ahead, but 12 years ahead of Vietnam. And, but you see many of the same dynamics on how much Vietnamese love education are hungry for higher quality education. And on the supply side, how there were relatively few competitors doing this high quality uh, uh, work. So we thought that, you know, quite uh, arrogantly that I think we could build something that uh, would be different um, and bring that out and, and help change Vietnam through, through education. Can I stop you? Um, mm -hmm. the, can, can we talk a little bit about what you were just saying with the exploding and the imploding now, uh, because sure. you know that that probably relates to the way things are turning out in Vietnam. If we're twelve years behind, and how I, I want to hear the exploding and why oh, is it exploding, sure. and why was why was it uh, did it implode, and how is that uh, model kind of like uh, how can you steer clear of, <clears throat> of it imploding in Vietnam as we're twelve years behind? Yeah. Well, maybe it starts with the implosion first, because I think that's actually more recent and, and relevant. And I, I think it's a one-off that's in China that should not affect Vietnam, but uh, you can never say for sure. So uh, summer of 2021, the government in China destroyed the entire for-profit education industry. They came out with regulations called the double deduction policies that said every uh, education provider must now be a nonprofit. They are not allowed to teach foreign curriculum or hire foreign teachers. And they are uh, restricted in only teaching in certain uh, days and times. And the, the nights and weekends and holidays are no longer acceptable. What that did is that destroyed an entire industry that had more than $100 billion of, of equity market cap to, to be reduced to nothing overnight. Um, and yet there were all these amazing companies, amazing technologies, amazing curriculums that had been developed um, that I basically said, look, like this is disaster for China, but it could be a humongous opportunity for Vietnam. So I went out and networked my way to all of my friends and tried to find uh, partners who might be able to be interested in coming to Vietnam and we take their systems <laughs> Uh, yeah. and, uh, you know, negotiate something very favorable given that their options in China kind of suck right now. Um, so yeah, I, I can't disclose yet, but we're in the middle of a transaction that would do exactly that, where we can take the leading companies, systems and technologies, Vietnam, affy it and bring it to Vietnamese consumers and make it truly ours in a way that no Vietnamese company could ever afford to do because they've literally thrown hundreds of millions of dollars of research and development into this stuff over the years. And we now get to bring that 
make it Vietnamese and uh, take advantage of effed up Chinese policies. But, but what was the logic of the Chinese government to pull the plug on that? Is really bizarre. Um, Xi Jinping uh, is wants to promote more children. So China went through a one-child policy. Uh, if, uh, if you guys are not aware, for a long, long time, decades, they had a, a policy where you could only have one kid. Now they're trying to reverse that because they're like, oh my God, our demographics are going to suck if we don't do something about childbirth. So the logic is, oh, people are spending too much per kid and can't afford to have more kids. Therefore, we need to make having each kid cheaper. Oh, well, where are they spending money on their kids? Oh, too much is being spent on education to make Chinese kids smarter and more competitive globally and competitive with one another. We need to stop them spending on it. So they're like, we'd rather have dumber kids, uh, but more of them uh, in order to solve this population. I mean, they're not saying that part of it, but like that that's the implication. That's inferred because... You know, if you don't have an educated population, it's I don't even think it's money spent. I think it's almost like let's dumb down the civilian population. So the less education you have, the more babies will come, right? Isn't yeah. that more of the inferred idea? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can have factory workers, maybe. Yeah. But you're not gonna have your creative tech entrepreneurs and engineers who come up through this system if you like are uh, trying to restrain yeah. it. So Interesting. So, so many friends from China are, are leaving to move to Singapore, U.S., everywhere else, because it's, it's clearly a changing climate right now in, in the tech space, definitely in, you know, with the education sector as well. So, wow, that's, so that, that's the end point for the industry, at least for now. Maybe they change their policies in a few years. But for now, that that's, looks like that's, it's been demolished. Done. But if you rewind 10, 20 years ago, booming middle class, high propensity to spend towards education, and a very underdeveloped private sector uh, of meeting those services. So it started off with super fragmented individual teachers tutoring their students, and then uh, companies developing to standardize, professionalize, increase the quality, add technology in, into all this. And China became one of the world's leaders in online education. Uh, in fact, online and offline uh, education and had developed AI technology that made sure that you could project one teacher to students all over China and have the other students meet in person and have a, a teaching assistant be aware of and monitor uh, for all the group work or, or behavioral stuff while the expert lecturer was um, sharing the, the knowledge. Uh, they had technology using AI to do facial recognition to know and log every single minute of which students are falling asleep versus actively engaged and wow. like showing that and then sending those reports to the parents. They have the best animations and music quality built into their curriculum and courseware. So it's not just like signing into Zoom and listening to your teacher lecture. You're playing games. You're doing interactive activities with classmates from all over the, the country. Uh, and they have all the different technology oh. components to make it really, really awesome, you know? So uh, they've developed all this over the last 20 years uh, while becoming the, the biggest market for, for education before it all, we all uh, exploded, uh, imploded. Yeah. The American education system in the United States yeah. is in the shit, it's in the toilet compared to 
I think a, a lot of education systems around the world. Uh, is that true? Or is that just something that, you know, a lot of us are saying here in the US because we're just, you know, we're, we're just paranoid that um, we're seeing a lot of, you know, statistics that are not in support of uh, kids actually learning in high school. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's a multi-part answer. So one, our colleges and universities still world-class of the top 100 universities in the world by most rankings, half are in the U S which is very, very good. So we are still the go-to spot for higher education. However, primary and secondary education crap and getting worse. Right. Um, a lot of it comes down to structural problems that are not easily fixable by just one elected official to kind of come in and change everything because they can't, right? You elect a new mayor of LA, the mayor does not have oversight over LAUSD, the, the school district, mm -hmm. right? That's a, a separate uh, governance model. Um, how are all these things funded? So in California, the California public school system used to be one of the best in the country, and now we're one of the worst. And there are many, many reasons why, but one of them that people do not like to talk about because it's not popular is funding for, per pupil has not kept up with inflation. In fact, it's gone down. It's um, in the seventies, we had uh, one of the prop uh, rules uh, that uh, citizens of California passed froze taxes on property values for older uh, transactions that has effectively reduced the revenue that goes into state coffers, a lot of which uh, of that budget had previously been used for education. And so over the decades, as you have basically less money going in because property taxes have been frozen, you now have less and less budget effectively in real dollars, especially with inflation, yeah. to spend towards education. Then there's a whole separate thing of how much should be funded by the individual neighborhoods versus the city versus the state versus the federal government. And look, like for better or for worse, it's funded by very hyper-local funds. So the rich neighborhoods will have better access to better teachers and resources than your inner city schools. And that's structurally problems. We say we care about equality, but unless you're willing to have differentiated funding, uh, or, uh, allocations than, than we currently have total funds and how they're allocated really freaking matter. Right. I think that's the biggest structural problem. You have all these other things that you also need to fix, but to me, the budget is one of the biggest and very unpopular to fix. And like no, no politician will get elected arguing for redistribution or higher taxes yeah. or pulling it away from something else. The, the, the reality is, uh, the college admissions business is one that, uh, only affluent families can afford, right? Uh, so we have very, very premium services for the most demanding families, for sure. Uh, we also, in order to help compensate it, we do provide scholarships for students every year where we will fund 100% of our college admissions program. Um, and so we just finished an application cycle uh, for, for that scholarship program now. Um, and then we also have lower priced formats uh, that have, you know, but it has less hours, right? But we do find ways that to make the, the service more accessible. Um, but that's the one where we have most students uh, in, in the US. In Vietnam, Everest Education serves uh, a wide range of students these days. So 
by grade level, we start with students as young as first grade and go all the way through university admissions. By subject, we have math, English, college admissions, everything in between, <laughs> one-on-one tutoring for any other subject, test prep for SAT, ACT, ISEE, SSAT, any test prep you need. Um, and in order to serve the middle class of Vietnam, this growing, very rapidly growing segment of the population, we now have courses taught in Vietnamese for these families, um, still help build that critical thinking skill, uh, the confidence, uh, all the subject matter uh, learning, but doing it online uh, at price points that are very, very affordable, half the price of comparable uh, offline courses. And you know, with what I shared with you before, I think we're able to do it in quality that is 5X, 10X better than what our competition can do at half the price. So super excited by that. Um, but it's early days. Online education in Vietnam is still very tiny compared to other markets. Um, but we're very excited that now we have products that literally serve the most affluent families all the way to middle-class families. Now, a lot of folks throughout the last two decades, uh, Vietnamese American folks, uh, have gone to Vietnam and crashed and burned in their business endeavors. <laughs> what is it about guys like you that, that relatively, I'm not saying that you went through it unscathed, but what, what has made it doable, uh, achievable for you? Hmm. I would not say I'm the most successful in, in that, in terms of at least financially within Vietnam uh, amongst my peers. Uh, but I've, I've survived and I feel like I've had an impact. So successful by, by other metrics, but certainly financially, I'd say the majority have kind of flamed out of, of the cases that I can think of. Uh, and only a small handful, and we're all friends with one another, have kind of stayed and built uh, meaningful careers that have personal meaning and financially successful there. Um, I think it's maybe the best way to think about it is some of the lessons from the flame out cases. Uh, a lot of them have to do with arrogance that I'm the foreigner. I know better. Come listen to me. And I'm the shit. And I mean, that, that's not a very easy way to make friends. Uh, it's a very easy way to make lots of enemies. Um, and inevitably, everyone runs into problems, right? But when people know that you have this arrogance, like they're much less forgiving uh, yeah. there. Uh, so, people will badmouth the government left and right when, when those things happen, like, Oh, I got convicted of tax things that like all these made up charges on all that. But like a lot of times they are evading taxes. <laughs> um, you know, um, like there, there's some really dramatic cases over the years there, but like sometimes, yeah, their business partner screwed them, but maybe you were also screwing your business partner. Like there was a reason why it's time to do it. Like, so I think what goes around definitely comes around. Um, I've been very lucky uh, to only go into business with close friends. Uh, I, I actually strongly prefer to go into business with close friends because of that trust factor. Um, but yeah, if you're someone on the outside, like you have to recognize that you're an outsider, right? Like 
Um, when I came in and as a finance professional in Vietnam, I did not go up and try and just set up shop myself. We came in as a New York hedge fund. We partner with a local uh, uh, firm to be our eyes, ears, and relationship on the ground to cover all our blind spots. Even though we were New York, US, like sophisticated investors from Wall Street, there's way more complexity that is Vietnam specific that we did not know. And even myself as a Vietnamese American did not know, right? Um, and there's yeah. so many gray lines. My, my brother and I talk about that a lot. We, we um, you know, we've been in Vietnam f doing business since uh, 2000, 2001. And that, that's what we just, we were just talking about this. If you want to really go into Vietnam and do business, you really have to find a 50% partner ship in Vietnam so they can handle all of the crap that you potentially are going to be dealing with like paperwork and taxes and government officials. Otherwise, you, good luck because you're just going to burn a bunch of money in Vietnam and you have to have somebody who has um, blood in the, you know, uh, yeah. they have some sort of um, equity in the game with you. Um, otherwise, you're going to really suffer. I think that's true, not just for building a business in Vietnam, but actually building a business anywhere to recognize that there are things that you are not an expert in and you're way better off finding someone better at you at those things that, that you obviously trust. Um, so even if you're doing a tech startup in Silicon Valley, I would highly recommend you find someone with a very differentiated skill set than yourself yeah. that is important for that business idea and make sure that they can handle all that. Um, and yeah, if you're in a highly regulated industry or highly regulated market, then you need people who are going to help you navigate the regulatory hurdles, right? Like if you're going to try and go into banking in the U.S., same thing. Oil and gas in the U.S., same thing, right? Like you need people who have the relevant relationships to help you navigate all that. So I think that part of it is is really no no different. Tony, we we covered a lot of things today. Um, yeah, didn't even get to go over seventy percent of my question list, but that's normal. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything that I'm leaving off the table? Is there anything that you would like to uh, turn the interview back off on on me? Uh, anything, you know? Um, I, I thoroughly oh, enjoy this. Absolutely. No, I think it's probably best to save that for a part two, uh, rather than going another fifteen twenty minutes. So, um, oh. I, I really enjoyed this as well, Kenneth. Thank you yourself for, for taking the time to organize these uh, and sharing uh, all of our stories uh, out there because there's so much richness, so much diversity that what it means to be Vietnamese is it can be very unique and different to each each person, right? And yeah. uh, the more examples that we see, the more ideas that hopefully we and our kids and our community can have. So uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on and I appreciate your time. Absolutely, sir. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. Thanks again for listening.